Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Officially, it, it will be available within the next two weeks, so keep an eye out uh, for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People sequel to Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available in a paperback, it's available in audiobook, and the ebook is permanently free to download whenever you're listening to this or watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So if you like me, you like the show, and you're excited for Banneker Bones 2 uh, and the possibility of an as-of-yet uh, untitled third adventure, go ahead and start your experience with Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror novels, including the young adult novel All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and the companion piece All Right Now, A Zombie Story. And then, of course, I've written The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial uh, about um, an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions. So it's a good time, but extremely for adults. All together now is just violence, no foul language. The Book of David is no holds barred. It just goes nuts. So if you are an adult and you enjoy the works of uh, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, something along those lines, Brian Keene, check out The Book of David. If you just want to wade your uh, toe in, Chapter 1, the first book in the five-book series, is available to download for free as an ebook. whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, coming up on Middle Grade Ninja, uh, on Friday, we're going to have a new episode with author Jessica Lawson, which I am extremely excited about. I have known Jessica for years online, and this is going to be our first time talking in person. Uh, so that's going to be a wonderful episode. She is the author of the... Um, uh, I can never remember the full title, The Actual and Truthful Adventures of Becky Thatcher, which is one of my absolute favorite books. Uh, she's the author of Nooks and Crannies, Waiting for Augusta, uh, and Under the Bottle Bridge. So that's going to be a wonderful episode. Make sure you find your way back here for that. Uh, and then next week, we'll be chatting with a man who needs no introduction, Daniel Jose Older. And we'll be talking about the Dactyl Hill Squad. That's going to be a wonderful episode. All kinds of great stuff coming your way. So Stay with me. Keep tabs on the show at middlegradeninja.com, where you can find interviews with hundreds of different literary agents and publishing professionals, including today's guest, literary agent Alana Roth-Parker. Uh, Alana, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. This is going to be a wonderful conversation. I know we're going to learn a lot. Uh, if you would, just start by giving kind of a esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your professional background and where you're coming to us from. Well, um, my professional background is running about 16, 17 years in children's books. I was really lucky. I went to school in New York. And while I was there, I landed an internship at Nickelodeon Magazine, which was like the happiest job of my life, um, which was really the first place I got to thinking about doing content for kids. Like I'd always been a nerdy book person and English major and all that stuff. Um, but that was like the happiest way of merging writing and kid stuff and just thinking about what kids like to read. So after college, I worked for five years as an editor at Parachute Publishing, which is a children's book packager that uh, you'll know most famously from Goosebumps, um, was their, their biggie. And after five years of doing that, I switched to being an agent. So I've been agenting now for over 10 years. 
Um, with some stops, you know, I've had some day jobs as a lot of agents do. I've worked in marketing at tech companies and nonprofits, um, learning that side of the field, which is, I think, pretty good actually for the agent hat I wear most of the time. Um, and I've always focused exclusively on children's books. So picture books, middle grade and young adult, um, which is really my passion. You're in the right place. That's my passion too. Plus, most of our listeners we're we're gonna be we're gonna get along famously. Great. Um, so I have to ask because I, I was very jealous when I was reading your bio to have worked with uh, Nickelodeon magazine. What was that uh, job like, and what did that teach you that you've been able to bring forward in your career? I mean, really, it was just it was an internship, and I also did some freelancing for them on and off. Um, I mean, what it taught me was what a group of adults that really enjoy having fun looks like like that was really it was such a happy workplace because the people who were there were so creative between the art directors and the artists and the editors the editorial meetings there were just laughter you know coming up with silly ideas and it was nickelodeon so it had to be silly like one of the first issues i worked on there was the gross themed issue and you know like that if you want to talk about slapstick funny laughter like it's grown-ups picturing like what can we research on gross topics that kids would think is really funny <laughs> so as an intern you know my, my job was to facilitate a lot of that research and um it was around the same time that like the first harry potter movie was coming out so i mean along like 2000 2003 whenever i was in college so it was a long time ago i can't remember that far back um and i had to call jelly belly the factory because they wanted the editors wanted to know how they got the booger flavored jelly bean to taste like boogers <laughs> and they wouldn't tell me <laughs> but i was sitting in my cubicle with just gaggles of editors like around my cubicle watching me have this phone conversation with some poor customer rep you know at jelly belly being like are you really telling me that nobody picks their nose to taste test for the, the Booker flavored jelly bean. <laughs> Somebody does, they're just not copying to it. They just wouldn't cop to it. They did tell me that the, um, the vomit flavored jelly bean was modeled after pepperoni pizza. So that's my memory for you from very many years ago, but it really was like, what's it like to think about what kids are interested in? And that was so refreshing, you know, like, so much of publishing, I feel like, you know, it can be kind of just, it can be like, it can beat you up a bit because there's a lot of rejection and, you know, there's a lot of depressing stuff out there, but like doing stuff for kids has a different kind of light to it. Like, yes, we, there's serious topics and whatever else, but just putting, being able to put yourself in the position of a young person and what they would enjoy was really what that job taught me. Um, and you know, the editors there, like the magazine, unfortunately, got shuttered by Nickelodeon not too long after, you know, like a, you know, some years after that. But like all of those people I'm still in touch with, all of those editors and everyone's doing creative stuff for kids still and writing funny books and doing fun comics. And, you know, that really was the thing that got me thinking about what it would be like to perpetually put content for kids out there. That makes sense. Yeah. And I imagine that if you had worked that job, you, you couldn't do it without a passion for children's books. That makes sure that that makes sense that those people are still making content for children of some kind. Yeah, I kind of feel like you either get it or you don't. And it's kind of a conversation I still have with people today, you know, when we're when there's younger agents or, you know, we're hiring an, an assistant and people want to do kids' books. I, you know, you really have to 
tell them you need a gut for this stuff. Like there's a part of you that has to really understand on a very instinctive level, what is kid friendly? Like what do kids enjoy? What do kids sound like? That, I mean, we all know adults were like so stiff and uncomfortable around children and you have to have a love for it and it has to run deep. And like, that's really, you know, that was the launching point. And I find that's been like the one true thing all the way through being an agent is like really being able to put yourself in the shoes of kids of all different kinds, all ages. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Makes sense. I was just thinking I have a um, somewhat tragic uh, Nickelodeon story that I'll probably never have another opportunity to share. So very quickly, I uh, went to see a live taping of Double Dare here in Indianapolis uh, in middle school. Uh, and Mark Summers was there. And um, mm. I, I don't know if he's still hosting it or if it's somebody new now. It's somebody new now, I think. I'm sure it is because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm old. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, me too. Uh, Mark Summers uh, came around the audience and he was looking for contestants to, to play. And he came up our aisle to our row. And I said, yes, this is my moment. It's going to happen. Oh. And it was the moment for two kids down from me. Uh, oh, yeah. tragic. And, and, and yeah. in some ways, I'm still that little boy sitting there waiting for Mark Summers. No, I'm not. <laughs> or to be signed. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm... I've got that in the back of my head, like somewhere there's at least a short story out of that experience. So we'll hang on to it. Yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, you uh, started off uh, as an editor and I imagine you still do uh, some editing quite a bit in the process. What, uh, what was it that led you to transition from editing to being a literary agent? Well, something was just opportunity. You never kind of know where things are going to shake out. Um, after those five years at a packager, you know, I had seen the business shift a little bit during that time. Um, the The publishing model, it was really interesting. When I got there, children's books were still very much in a digest paperback publishing model, like where they would do lots of series, publish, you know, one every two months or every three months. So you were always putting a new book out. Um, everything was straight to paperback at a certain price point, And that's what existed for that middle grade audience. Um, when I got there, the books we were doing were Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen books. We had, they had the, the license for Mary Kate and Ashley. So I was doing like 24 books a year. Of that was a huge property. I'm sure it probably huge. still is. Huge. Well, I think that part, no, they're, they're onto the fancier endeavors now with their fashion design, but the girls were still 18 or like 17 or 18 when I started. And, you know, we were doing a series for four different age levels of their properties. And this, the market changed. Like during that five years I was there was when Lemony Snicket came out and the Spiderwick Chronicles came out and Twilight came out. And all of a sudden we'd gone from paperback driving children's books to hardcover. And the packaging model that my company was on couldn't quite keep up with that. Um, because they weren't renewing contracts as quickly because now books were more expensive to produce and taking longer between each book. So the, I mean, what packagers at the time were known for was being able to do things very quickly and cheaply that were, um, you know, the publishers couldn't handle, they needed to outsource it. And then publishers didn't need that as much because they were buying original manuscripts from authors directly and they didn't need packagers as much to produce them. Now, granted, packagers are still alive and well. That particular company might not have been able to adapt to the times. But while I was there and watching their struggles, I found myself um, 
being tasked with reaching out to literary agents to find writers to work on the series with us and started to think, well, if we're doing, all, if I can do all this creative work at the packager, come up with book ideas, outlines, all the editing, and I have to go find writers, like, why can't I just do that? You know, like I, so, and after about, you know, a couple of years there, like I start, I actually started by looking for regular editorial jobs at bigger publishing houses and then an opportunity to become an agent like that just kind of became more clear. And the idea of being in a more flexible, less corporate setup was appealing. And, you know, who knows, like if I, I that was a long time ago, I didn't know if I was going to stay in New York forever. It turns out I didn't um, and wanted something I could take with me and keep going. So I made the jump and it was kind of scary because it went, I went from being salaried to like nothing. Um, which is why I had other jobs, <laughs> did other things along the way until I got stable enough as an agent. Uh, but yeah, it was mostly just like, it just kind of happened. Like it happened a bit organically from what my job had changed into doing and where the market was going, where children's books were evolving and my desire to like have my own batch of talent that I was shopping and not like looking for people for, you know, like that I, you know, th these are my clients writing these books originally. So that's how it, that's how it happened. That makes sense. And then um, I wanted to ask you a question that's gone right out of my head, but was uh, very <laughs> very firm to plan it. Um, oh, um, I wanted to ask how because um, I know I've, I've seen quite a bit on Twitter um, discussions of entry level publishing salaries and yeah. how they really haven't kept up with inflation or the times or, or Manhattan prices or, or any of that. Uh, but you started with no salary. Did I hear that right? Just well, all as an agent, yeah. I mean, as a, you know, when I chip into those conversations, I see a lot of people talking about their editor. Lana, have I lost you? I think I may have. Maybe we're, uh, maybe we've got a satellite that's moved behind or beside the moon or Maybe a UFO blew it out of the sky. We'll see here. Well, I tell you what, while we're waiting on Alana and the satellite to come back to us, there's always time for a live reading. Doesn't enjoy that. Uh, let's go ahead and let's do a chapter from Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, naturally. And let's do Meet Banneker Bones. Banneker Bones stood at the top of a spiraling steel staircase. He was dressed in the clothes Ellicott would come to think of as his uniform because Banneker never wore anything else. Mud brown slacks and a black dress shirt with a cherry red tie over which he wore a forest green v-neck sweater. Atop his head was a black felt hat with a wide white band just above its brim that made Banneker look a little like a detective in an old pulp comic. Is the president here, Banneker asked. He adjusted his huge glasses by pressing the bridge into place with his pinky, a maneuver that struck Ellicott as being oddly dainty. I don't see any Secret Service agents. Reggie rolled his eyes. I'm sure Air Force One is on its way. Banneker brightened. Really? No. And do you know why Air Force One isn't coming? Because you're only 11. But guess who is here? Relegy motioned to Ellicott with both hands. Your cousin. From the top of the stairs, Banneker regarded Ellicott. Meh, he said, and walked out of view. 
but the cat frowned. What the heck? Reggie shook his head and started up the spiraling steel staircase. Ellicott, not wanting to be left alone so near the holographic Tyrannosaurus Rex, even though he knew it wasn't real, followed after. The first thing he saw at the second floor was the giant television screen, only because it was impossible to miss. Almost the entire far wall was one big screen, 10 feet high and 20 feet across. I'm back. Excellent. I'm so sorry. Oh, you're fine. It's an opportunity to plug the book. I'm, what I'm was the last thing it. I was saying? <laughs> We were talking salary. about, oh, salary and, and not having one. Yeah, and, so uh, tips I Tips for agents salary. who might be in a similar situation. <laughs> I had a salary when I was an editorial assistant, and my salary in 2003 was $28,000 a year, which is the same salary a lot of people are getting now, which, I mean, I don't know how people do it now. It's really awful. Um, I mean, inflation-wise, that's got to be closer to, what, like eighteen, seventeen thousand 17000 something much lower. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, like, horrible. Like, my... I mean, the apartment I lived in, it was upper, you know, I lived in an Upper West Side three bedroom apartment with two friends from college and I paid $800 a month for my room. It was a $2,700 a month apartment, but that apartment went up to $4,500, but you know, in no time. So I don't know how anyone lives off of it, like, which is a huge barrier for entry. And of course, um, lends itself to more privileged kids with parents that can help out being the people who can take the jobs, which is perpetuating lack of diversity in the industry. I mean, I obviously fit into that privileged parent category myself, but you know, the fact that there are no raises like isn't improving anything. It's not making it easy for anybody to get by. So as an agent, it's a little different. Like there's different structures for getting paid. Some people do start as an assistant and then you are hopefully salaried at whatever agency you're at. Um, and paid a living wage. Um, I'm not 100% sure what those assistant salaries are, um, but there are a lot of agencies that are big enough that have full-time jobs, like in the you know doing contracts or doing foreign rights or you know other services within the agency that would merit a salary. Um, a lot of agents, as they grow, don't want to be on a salary because then they're not getting as much of the commission on the projects they sell. So over time, you know, the goal is to be making enough through your commissions that you can just live off your commissions. But it takes five solid years of being an agent before you're even making enough commissions. So, you know, like, I could sell a bunch of books my first year of publishing, but like those checks come in small pieces, you're only getting a little bit of it at a time, it's not enough to live off of. Um, and you really need to get a few projects that start selling like books to consumers to give you something to float on. Um, so it can be really, really challenging. Yeah, I looked at a number of finance jobs that were financial advisor jobs that were relatively similar. There at least it was usually uh, first year salary, second year half salary, right. third year, hope hope you're good at this or we probably fired you anyway. Yeah, my brother <laughs> does financial stuff too. And it's like, you know, he went from, he's basically gone from nothing to nothing to nothing, but like, you know, building a portfolio and, you know, taking that percentage. So it's tough. Like, and truthfully does, you kind of need to have a client that hits big enough to help you. And not everybody gets that. Um, and it can take a while to find that person. So it's not without its stresses. Like I've been doing this long enough and I have enough clients and I also have, you know, one tent pole, very successful client, uh, Kira Cass on the YA side. So that's afforded me a stability and you know but it's it's cyclical like 
that series peaked and it's backlisted, which is awesome. But like we need, you know, I'm would never complain about having another 10 pole client, like, you know, the number of things that coming out that like, we all hope they hit really big. It's just, it's publishing is really unpredictable. Well, so many questions for you on the back of that. One thing I've, I've been uh, big on is wondering why so much of publishing is still centralized in Manhattan, where it does absolutely create this issue yeah. of only the uh, privileged that can afford to get into it are there. Um, now that you're not no longer in New York, obviously you cut your teeth, you made the connections you need right. to take with you to where you're at now, but how could, um, is it possible for agents to uh, get established without paying those Manhattan uh, prices? Yeah, I think it's just a little harder. I mean, you still need to be somewhat roped into the industry. So there are agents that start out elsewhere. Um, you know, I've actually met a few this weekend at the Michigan Writers Workshop I went to on Saturday. But it is tough. You know, like it's you can do the job over email and phone. And I know a lot of people who do, but you have to be like really committed, you know, like you have to like, you have to really, you know, be able to cold call and reach out and introduce yourself. And, you know, I do hope most of those people have some editorial background or some, some way they've taught themselves to know how the industry works to have editorial, you know, skills and, and everything else. Um, I, historically agenting is a very apprenticeship based job. Like you, you learn from somebody, you know, like you are taught, you don't have to have a degree or, you know, it's, you build up to it over time. Um, so I am always a little wary of people who come out of nowhere, but you know, it depends who you're working for. Like some of the, some, you could start from another city and be working for an agent with a great reputation who's got great connections, in which case you have a mentor and that's awesome. Um, I started there and then left for Michigan three years ago. So, you know, I, everything, it's easy for me to do my job from here because I feel like I already know what I'm doing. Um, not starting from scratch. I mean, it's doable. I mean, publishing is based there because that's historically where the companies just are. It's not exclusively there. There are cities that have, you know, some more like the, Boston has Candlewick and Charles Bridge and other publishers. San Francisco has Chronicle and some, you know, the heart used to be Harper offices out there. Like there are other places you can be and be an editor, it's harder for the editors. Like they really get stuck in Manhattan. Um, agents have more flexibility and can take it wherever they want to. Yeah, we've got Wiley Publishing and um, Tanglewood Press, of course, here in Indiana. Right. So yeah, awesome. I mean, there are plenty of places where there's other stuff. There's a few outfits in Chicago. Sourcebooks is based just outside of Chicago. So you can be other places, but there are just way fewer jobs. So it's harder to to find something so if uh, authors are looking at you know they've got their publishers marketplace they're constantly on middlegradeninja.com uh, evaluating <laughs> yeah. different agents and trying to figure out uh who's who's right for them and obviously they're watching and listening to this and they say alana roth parker that's the one but they send you a query and it just doesn't work out uh, for whatever reason so they can't get you how should they go about evaluating agents what are things to look for to, to tell a good agent from a bad one well, that's hard because um, not everything's super transparent on the internet. Uh, I mean, the, what you really want to do is find the people who are selling books like yours. So that's the, the best metric 
to look for is the people who represent things in your category that are actively selling books in those categories, um, which means you have to read a lot. Like you need to know what the marketplace looks like. So even before you start looking for an agent, it's really good to know what's being published in, you know, in your field. So like what kinds of middle grade, what kinds of young adult, and then those books often have acknowledgments on the back and you can always find out who represented those books by who the author thanked for all their labor. Um, and that's the best way to start. And of course, there's many, many online resources, uh, Query Tracker, Publishers Marketplace, where you can look up, you know, or Publishers Weekly does their children's bookshelf uh, newsletter twice a week where deals are listed. Just paying attention to who's selling adjacent to what you're publishing. That's the first thing to look for to make sure you're not targeting badly. Um, and then from there, it's, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of homework to do. I mean, thankfully there is the internet on, you know, not thankfully there's the internet. Um, agents have Twitter. You can always feel like you're getting to know somebody that way. But again, that's self-presentation. You don't know what's real or not real based on how someone's, you know, popular on Twitter. Like there's very popular agents on Twitter and you know, I, I don't know you know, like I'm not necessarily that impressed by their sales or their books. Um, yeah, I, it's hard. Like you kind of just have to go with your gut. You have to do homework. You have to read interviews that they give online. Um, you know, it's looking at their history is really, really important. Like really someone's sales history is the most important thing you can look for. Um, are they selling to places you can't get your book yourself? You know, are they getting, do they have access to the publishers you want to see your book published by? Like, those are the important pieces. Like, cause that'll tell you if they, they have the capacity to like be aggressive with you or get you where you can't go. Like if you, there's plenty of authors and it's a, it's a way to go is if you want to self-publish great. Like, or if you want to go to small presses, great. Do you need an agent for those things? Not necessarily. Um, so, but if your goal is something other than that and you need someone to help you do things you can't do by yourself, that's really what you're looking for somebody to do. So I always say like, you know, look at an agency's records, like, are they selling to small presses that you can submit to by yourself? Like maybe that's not, really that helpful for you like that's not getting your foot in the door anywhere um and then experience level is another thing like i have no problem with a junior agent i was a junior agent you know once upon a time i had five years in the business before that where i was working with lots of different publishers so i wasn't like nothing you know i had a baseline education um other junior like we have an awesome junior agent like she's learning from us so like we trust her you know um like if someone's young, knowing who they're learning with, like knowing who their bosses are is important because then you can look to that boss's street cred and history. Um, yeah, just like, I really think it's because it's such an experience-based business, you really want somebody who knows the ropes or is being taught by somebody who really knows the ropes and that's it. And then once you're really getting into the weeds on like if you, someone's offered you representation, then you need to like know if the style is right for you, if their editorial style is right for you, if their communication style is right for you, if they're transparent and trustworthy, if they conduct business in a way that makes you comfortable, you know, if your personalities fit together or not, like there's a lot of different ways of going about this business. Like I myself have a small client list and a very strong personal relationship with each client. Like 
I want to be accessible to everybody. I want them to all feel comfortable to get in touch with me whenever they want to. I don't want to have too many people that I can't do that for everybody, but I'm not, I, that's one style. Other people are not like that. Some people are much more, have huger lists, outsource more to assistance. You know, they're not handholdy. You know, they're just kind of like, they might be more of like, we call them sharks, you know, like they're more <laughs> like, they're just aiming big, aiming high and getting those big deals, which are awesome. Like we all want to have big book deals, but you know, publishing is also a very long, you know, labor of love and you have to roll with the punches and see what you get and strategize. And, you know, if you want someone that's going to stick with it, if you don't get a huge book deal out of the gate, that's a thing, you know, like there's a lot of pieces. Um, I know I just said so many things and there's a lot to parse through there. It's not like one piece of advice, but it's having like a good, like a good holistic understanding of who that person is style wise, how they function in the industry and what are they like to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Like when I, offer a how, I would be to find that out about somebody because that's usually not on publishers marketplace. No, it's and not like sometimes you're not going to know any of those things until you talk to them. And truthfully, a lot of that stuff's a moot point unless that person loves your book and wants to assign you, you know, like, you're only going to get that opportunity if you've written something really solid that gets attention. Um, and then once you're on the phone, then you have the opportunity to really like do a probing, you know, interview and like find out what they're like, how they talk, what, you know, what their vision is for you and your career. Um, like I, when I offer representation to a potential client, like I talk to them on the phone for at least an hour, hour and a half on that first time, because it's, it's for us to get to know each other and for the writer to ask questions and see what it's like to work with me. Um, sometimes people have more than one offer, in which case they should do that with every person who offers, because that's the only way to get to know what your, what your options are, what you're choosing between. Um, I also always let, I offer to let the potential clients talk to my existing clients and they can ask them whatever they want to ask them. Um, that way they have reference, you know, like references, you know, and sometimes they'll have a, they'll pick who, who they want to talk to. Sometimes I'll make suggestions, you know, but then that gives them a feel for what's a couple of years with me looks like. Um, and you know, it's not, unfortunately it's never a guarantee of success like i don't you know what because i can't predict what everything's going to do but it's a long term it's a long tail view like you have to like really you want to know what somebody's like to work with for a while not just this first thing um and that's the moment where i really feel like people need to do their due diligence and not just get like so excited that they got an offer that they take it you know like you don't have to take it if there's something about the agent that gives you pause or you don't really think they know what they're doing or they're not really representing your category, but they're like taking a chance on this thing because they like it. You know, like you really, you want to feel really comfortable. Like that's the oh, thing I tell people. Tough. If you've been uh, out there in the query go round for two or three years and yeah. here finally. <laughs> no, I've, I mean, I have a lot of, most of my clients, it's not their first book they've queried. You know, like most of them have tried it once or twice um, or had an agent before and it didn't work out. Like not everybody's like, wet behind the ears on it's their first thing out the gate so you know that's always nice too because then someone comes to you with a little more maturity and sense of where they want to be and can you know be you know not as naive not i don't mean that in a negative way but some you know i when people are just like so excited like 
you want to be like, okay, we got to do real work now. You know, like we got to like really take this one step at a time. Um, Cause you got to like gird your loins and buck up for, you know, getting an agent's one thing, getting published is another. Nope. You've signed yeah. me. Let's schedule a lunch with JK Rowling. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, what kind of, what, what kind of clients are you looking for? What sort of projects are you looking to represent? Well, I have, like I said, I only handle children's. Um, my list is more heavily weighted on the picture book and young adult sides right now. I'm a little leaner in the middle, in the middle grade area. Um, so I'm always looking for middle grade because I'm always, I always feel like I have less of it than I do of other things. Partially because I think it's harder for people to get the voice right. Um, I think there are more people who remember what they sounded like as teenagers and more people who feel like they can write for small children and that that latency elementary school periods like tougher for grownups to access. Like they don't remember what a 10 year old sounds like um, or what, what it was, what it was like to want to have an adventure, but like not the romance isn't a factor, you know, like they're not, the kids don't have those feelings yet. You know, I think that middle bracket is harder for a lot of people to reach into. Um, so there's just less of it that I see. And I think also the market has dictated a lot of that. Like YA is popular because its sales can be bigger, but middle grade feels like it has a ceiling because kids age out of it. Obviously there's deal, you know, like there's things that break the mold, like Percy Jackson or, you know, Daft Pilkey, you know, like that kind of stuff is just huge, but you know, the kids are still going to age out of it. So yeah, but the yeah. next comes the next a batch new comes generation. Get that's them the too. key is like, if you can find something that's classic enough to stay, then middle grade can last forever. That's one of many things that I, I yeah. absolutely adore about middle grade is that that hope of getting more readers just by virtue of um, not to be too, uh, right. too dark, but there are at any given time, theoretically more younger people on the planet than there are older. So right. you have a greater chance of, uh, of getting more readers. And it's so, not as trend focused. So that's good too. Like middle grade can skew more classic. Like there's some of it that can feel a little bit more um, evergreen. So like YA is trendy, like vampires come and go, you know, and then those books are gone. Like they're not going to last forever, but middle grade, because things can, that it's, it's at an age where things are not as, what's hot focused, then hopefully if you hit the market right, you can just prepare, like you can just sell, you know, you can backlist and stay forever. When you figure out how to absolutely guarantee it, you, you let me know and that's <laughs> what will If I figure out how to forward. absolutely guarantee it, then I'll retire a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, we, we talked a lot about evaluating an agent when you're having that conversation with a, with a, a potential client that you want to offer on mm -hmm. what kind of things are you evaluating um i'm evaluating their um openness to revision i'm evaluating their openness to ideas and collaboration uh publishing is a very uh collaborative group activity <laughs> um you're never it's never just your thoughts on something and you have to give up a lot of control along the way, um, good or bad, you know, you know, part of you wanting to get published is like turning over your book to somebody else and letting them decide how to publish it. Uh, it's not up to you, 
So, you know, making sure someone's a team player, that they can roll with the punches, that they are rational, you know, thinkers. You know, we always say writers are all a little bit crazy. Um, and I don't mean that in, you know, a weird ableist way. I mean that in like the quirky kind of way. Um, you know, writers are quirky. Like they're making up stories all the time. So like there's like voices in their heads chattering. <laughs> yeah, if I make that excuse for myself and other writers I know, that right. half my brain is in another world. Right, like I'm not really here. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but you know, just making sure someone is ready for what's coming, you know? Uh, because, you know, I really like to think of what I'm doing as it's a team effort. Like I'm, I'm a partner in the process. I'm not the boss. Like the client's actually the boss. Uh, although they are handing over a certain amount of control to me to be there to to act on their behalf, to send books out, to send, who to send them to, how to pitch something, how to frame it, how to negotiate it. So they need to trust me. Um, but you know, they also I, I like people who are proactive and feel like they want to be part of the process and have the information. Um, but just that there's a good give and take between us in terms of. Uh, opinion and control and you know everyone's giving it a good faith effort and there's not you know like sometimes i i think a lot of that comes down to communication style like making sure someone's a, a clear communicator they can tell me what they need and what they want and i can address it accordingly uh, you know in the times where i let clients go or they've let me go it's probably it's mostly come down to communication breakdown like at some point one or both parties was no longer able to say certain things to each other like do you like this what's our next step you know like and like any other relationship if once that goes like you're not probably in a very good place so that's a, that's the most of it i like to enjoy my clients too so some of it's just like getting to know them and is it a fun chat like are they someone i want to talk to because i'm going to have to talk to them a lot you know, like I do talk to my clients a lot. Like some people are phone people, some people are email people, but there's a lot of contact. So like you want to enjoy that. Um, and yeah, just like being excited for their ideas. Like where do they want to go with the world? You know, like what's next for them? What are they excited about writing about? That, that kind of thing. What, um, have you ever had a an hour and a half conversation with somebody where you were considering offering representation and they shot themselves in the foot during the conversation and, and you, you backed off and said, no, nope, this isn't for me? Yeah, I have. And in those cases, it was someone who just had too many, like too many pokers in the fire, so to speak. Like they had a lot of projects in a lot of different at a lot of different categories that were already kind of like on submission like someone who'd sent picture book manuscripts in middle grade and ya out to a lot of small presses and were querying multiple projects simultaneously and i just was kind of like oh god that's a lot of cleanup for me to do because there was no strategy involved with it it was a very like spaghetti at the wall approach and i can understand writers wanting to like you know hedge their bets and you know, diversify and see if they can get something through. But it spoke to me of a lack of focus and a lack of patience. Um, and maybe not even knowing which was the best thing, you know, like which was the thing they should focus on. Um, and I also, you know, like part of me doesn't want to have to come into it and like clean up messes. You know, I don't want, like that's a hard thing to start with. Like the way the system is kind of structured is I, you pitch me a project and it's like your best thing. 
And that's the thing we start with and then we go from there. But like when someone comes to me with a thing and I think this is their best thing, but it turns out that they've got a bunch of stuff in like 10 other places then I'm like, I don't know what to make of them. You know, I don't know what to make of where their head is. Um, and it made me nervous. Like it just made me wonder like how I would put this person on a path to get them published effectively. So that one didn't work out. That makes sense. Yeah. If, uh, if just for anybody who's listening, says I have a lot of things, uh, a lot of pokers on the fire, and, and they come to you. How can they convey that they're willing to focus? That they they'll put those other things down to help with the cleanup. Well, I you know I don't know. I think a lot of that has to happen before you decide to query a book. You know, it's I I don't blame writers should totally have lots of projects going if they want to. I mean, I'm not looking to stifle anybody's creativity, um, but you also part of being good is like self-editing. You can't rely on someone else to totally structure everything for you and edit you. Like you should have a gut instinct for what your best work is right now and what, or even just the thing you're most passionate about right now. Cause the other piece of publishing is I've always found that the best books come out of people who really love what they're writing. You know, like you don't get good books out of people who are, tired of something or feel like they have to write something you know like the best books come out of the authors who are the most passionate about that subject or that story so if someone's got so many things out there like that's it's hard for me to know what they love and no matter what like you have to start with one project so you know i just think people need to that's part of why having a network having a critique group having friends you know so you're not in a silo you're not alone you know and that you get feed, like it allows you to process like what am I producing that's better than other things? Where should I focus my efforts? Um, I do think a lot of that should happen before you start looking for an agent, because I think that helps you mature and get to the place of being ready for publication. So yeah, one hundred percent agree. I run a uh, fiction critique group here locally. Um, we go for five weeks and somebody brings in their manuscript that they're mm -hmm. working to finish. Like, oh my gosh, I'm about almost to the halfway point of this manuscript and you've got a website full of literary agents. I'm going to start firing up course. Like, no, right. no, don't no. do that. No. Give it a year, two years. Don't maybe wait till your second book because you, right. you just, yeah. you're learning still. Yeah. I mean, I really think almost all of my authors queried another book before the one I signed, like almost all of them. Because, you know, everyone, le you learn, like you're just better on the second book or the third book. Um, and that's not, that's good. You know, like that's, everyone thinks that means you're, you failed somehow on the first thing. It's like everyone's failed at some point. Like, that's okay. The real artists are people who can make something and throw it out because they know the next thing they make will be better. You know, like how many Monet, how many paintings of the cathedral did Monet paint? Like hundreds of them, you know? just painted the same thing over and over again until it got to where you wanted it to go. So that's writing has to be the same way. Unfortunately, and I've, God knows I've got shelf books right. that uh, I love so much and they're just going to stay right there on the shelf. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's okay. Like sometimes you just have to be at peace with the process. Like the books, you know, just because they didn't get published doesn't mean they weren't worth writing. Like the goal of every book isn't to be published. Like the goals of some books are like the writing act in and of itself, because writing, you know, books are 
a publicly shared form of entertainment. Like we think that in order for it to be worthwhile, someone else has to read it. But writing is also just self-expression and a fun exercise for each person. Like it's something we can do for ourselves just as much as something we want to share with other people. No, I 100% agree. Yeah. I was uh, having that very conversation with another author who was asking me about money. Like, yeah, no, this series sells a little better. This series sells a little bit worse. Right. But that book helped me mend my broken heart. Right. And you can't tell exactly. me that's not some compensation worth considering. Exactly. Totally. Let's uh, demystify your job a little bit, if, if, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> if I can. What does your average yeah. day or your average week look like? Yeah. Oh, God. I don't even think I have an average day or week. Um, I mean, I have an average, sort of an average schedule. I mean, you know how it is, like, with kids in the picture. You never know what day is going to totally go out the window. Um, like last week, where all of a sudden I was supposed to be here talking to you, and daycare calls and says, your kid's throwing up and you have to go home. Um, so for me right now, because I've got young kids, I work three full days a week. The older one's in school full time. The baby, you know, will get there. But right now he's only in daycare three days a week. So I work three full days a week. I really, you know, uh, I really just every week starts a little different. Like I, I sort of make a to-do list um, Sunday night or Monday because I work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, my agency in New York, we have a weekly Skype call, usually on Tuesdays at lunchtime, but sometimes it moves. So we we talk early in the week and then everybody sends everybody a roundup email of what we worked on all week. So I kind of make a list at the beginning of everything I hope I'm gonna get done, um, which is like edit this client, follow up on these projects, you know, read query letters, read submissions, you know, it's kind of lets me run through like where my clients all are and like what needs to happen on each of them. Um, but every week can be a little different in terms of like how much editing am I doing this week versus how much submission reading am I doing this week versus um, am I submitting any projects this week? Uh, and it just kind of goes from there. So it can, it can vary wildly. Like, um, Sometimes I have no clients that sent me revisions that I need to work on. Sometimes I've got five that I have to get through, um, in which case there's a lot of to-do lists and a lot of me updating people and a lot of me being like, okay, client B, you're three down in the queue. Like, you'll, I'll get to you in 10 days. You know, just making sure everyone's up to speed on where everything is. Um, that's mostly it. Like, because, you know, I'm not in New York and I don't, you know, I'm not in charge of any functions at the agency, like foreign rights or contracts or whatever. It's mostly I set my own schedule and time and it's an ebb and flow of what's coming in and what needs to go out. So like this week, I'm editing a client manuscript um, that I just signed a week and a half ago. I want to submit that quickly before summer hits because summer gets too quiet with everyone's vacations and publishing. Um, so I'm hoping I'll get that done. I'm going to pitch a project tomorrow that's ready to go. I And I have a lot of submissions I have to read because I'm a little behind. But that's kind of, that's the regular week. I mean. I mean, it sounds ideal because yeah. you're theoretically setting your own hours. But I know the way that could sometimes work. Yeah. All the stuff you have to do is setting your hours. And this was supposed to be my time off. But here I am. <laughs> right. And like, of course, like this morning, I had to be at a Mother's Day thing at school for my five year old because they were having a program. So like I lost an hour 
then, you know, you and I had this scheduled. So it's like, you know, I have phone calls set up around these various times. I know I have to check in with X, Y, and Z clients. Like it just kind of fills itself in. You know, I try and block out time for myself a couple afternoons a week to like go read submissions, but it doesn't always work out. Um, and it's also like the biggest thing for me is how I read. Like when I'm reading to edit, like I need to be at the computer because I have Word open so I can mark things up. If I'm just reading to like read a client manuscript for first impressions or read submissions, I take my Kindle somewhere where I don't look at my email. You know, like I have to just focus that way. So, you know, productivity is it's a fluid thing, you know, Unfortunately, in, in time and space. <laughs> and truthfully, sometimes like I, even though I work best with like dedicated work days, like if I were more part-time, I think I'd go crazy. But like bottom line is a lot of times after bedtime for the kids at night, I'm sitting on my computer writing pitch letters or researching editors to send things to, or just, you know, I have Star Trek on in the background and I'm doing like prep for what I, what I'm going to do during the day, during the week. So when you get ready to submit a project, what uh, what's your process for preparing? Yeah, that's my question. It's a long process. Like I actually start when I sign somebody. Usually if I'm gonna sign something, I know, um, I have to know, like I have a few uh, like poker face tells for myself, I guess. Like I know if I, I can think of a couple editors like as I'm reading it that would love this, then it's probably like then that that's a really good sign for me to sign something. Um, so usually I start thinking about a submission list like really early, like even before I sign a project. Although I don't write it down because I don't want to jinx myself. Um, I don't start making lists until after I've signed somebody officially because <laughs> I don't want to get my heart broken in case they don't pick me. Um, but yeah, I have a very. I think one of your questions on the sheet you answered, asked me was like, "What does your spreadsheet look like?" Uh, I have a very, I'm a total spreadsheet nerd. Like I love them. Um, so I have a very, uh, it looks complicated, but it's not, um, template for how I structure my submissions, uh, lists that like has all the publishers and then all their imprints. So it's like alphabetized. And then I can sort them into like, here are my round one editors, here are my round two editors. Uh, and about like, how many editors typically are in each round? It's really, really project specific. Okay. On average, 15 editors on a first round of submission. I try and have a second round of just as many, like ready to go, because you never know what's going to happen. Like sometimes the market's weird. Sometimes there was an editorial revision that I just didn't see clearly enough until we sent it out on submission. So, you know, so I want to give myself an opportunity to uh get that book where it needs to go and i like to have two solid rounds of editors that i can send it to um mostly like i don't like exhausting all my options in one go it's not the smartest thing some houses don't like it when you send to more than one imprint at a time you know they don't like competing internally some houses don't care you know like it's that's all stuff i have to know as i make the list but it becomes very strategic like it's very strategy oriented like looking you know making sure it's balanced between these big five publishers and these you know, bigger independent publishers and, you know, having a backup for myself of equally great editors. Like I don't consider the B list to be bad. The B list is just like another A list because you like can't send it to everybody at the same time. Um, so I work on that for a long time. I, I'm constantly tweaking it up until the minute I, I'm even sometimes changed the day I'm pitching. Like 
sometimes you just like some, you see something or you, your mood changes and that editor, or they went on vacation and you have to wait. So you're going to try somebody else. Like you never know. Uh, and I write a pitch letter that is very much based off of the query letter that I get from the client. Although I'd usually change it a bit, but that's why query letters are important to do and do well, because I will use it later. Um, I run all that, that both the letter, my submission list, I send it to the client so that they can look it over, ask me questions. I send it to my team here in case they have extra thoughts about editors that I haven't considered or forgot, or they went to lunch with somebody last week and found out that so-and-so is looking for X, you know? Um, and I'm an email pitcher. Some people swear by the phone. Most people I know really hate the phone. So, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I think email's good. Like I think people, I think editors are shy creatures also. Like anyone who works in books is probably not the most extroverted person in the whole wide world. So most people like are terrified by random phone calls. Um, so <laughs> I just send emails. Uh, and then it's out there. And then you wait for a while. You know, like sometimes things go fast, sometimes things take forever. But that's my basic process. Um, and then clients get to pick like, do you want me to share the responses with you as they come in? Do you only want me to tell you, you know, do you only want good news? Like, do you want me to just hold the bad news until there's good news? You know, some, pe ever, some people really want to see everything as it comes. That's cool. You know, client's choice on that one. Yeah, I'd be one of those people. I don't trust good news. <laughs> give, me, yeah. give me everything. Yeah. So some people want the rejection letters right away. Some people just want to know if, you know, they'll read the letters later, but they want to know if passes are coming in. Yeah. Who still has it. And I'm pretty open door. Like I don't mind them having that information. You know, they should know where their book is. What uh, kind of feedback are you looking for from that first round in case there is a second round? Um, yeah. Well, it's, you know, as the notes start to come in, you get a sense of, is it, a market problem because people will say like yeah we're just having trouble with let's say sci-fi right now like i you know, just pick something which we do hear that a lot um and then you know like it's not a judgment on the book it's that like they're having trouble making those numbers work so they're not buying as much in that field um or sometimes you start to get consistent notes like well the pacing is kind of slow you know it wasn't making me turn pages if I hear that more than once, I'm like, oh, we need to fix that. So usually in that case, like if I get a consistent editorial note, then that's something the author and I talk about and we'll probably do a revision on it before I send on a second round. But sometimes from... it's just like, sometimes the notes are like, this was great, but like I just didn't click with the voice. In which case you just keep sending it because then you just have to wait for the editor who does. So there's like nothing to edit. You know, like you're just hoping, you know, finding the right person has the right match. Just write them a note, have better taste. Thanks, have a nice day. Right. <laughs> Thanks and for then, nothing. Um, <laughs> after you do that initial, your first revision with the, the client, then you do the revision if the first round doesn't go so well, mm -hmm. but then you do secure an, an editor in a house. Yeah. What kind of revisions can authors look uh, forward to uh, potentially enduring beyond that? And how do you handle that with authors? Well, usually at the point that we have a deal and they have an editor, I back off. Um, I mean, I still keep track of things, making sure they're getting handed in on time and everyone's meeting their deadlines, but I don't want, I don't need the clients to get too confused by who they, who they're revising for. So 
there's no way to tell what kind of revisions they're going to have to do, although there's always revisions. Um, sometimes they're deep and sometimes they're not, you know. Um, but I usually just try and take a back seat at that point because I don't want to muddy the waters with too many opinions. But I'm there in case something doesn't sit well with an author and they don't want to do it or like they have a strong reason that that change is not in their vision for the book. So because at that point I become less in a sales role and more in an advocacy role where I'm there to fight the fights for the client, like talk to the editor when things get tough. If they don't feel comfortable expressing something themselves, I will do it. When covers come in, if they hate it, I write that email. You know, I'm the one who follows up on the annoying stuff the authors don't want to have to follow up on, like checks and, you know, contracts and all the rest of it. So, but yeah, like mostly, you know, I trust editors to do their jobs and that's why they're good and why they're there. So my, you know, as far as me as editor, I always edit things to get them saleable so that I think they're really good reads, but you know, I'm, I can't take care of everything and I don't want to belabor things too long either because otherwise we'll never get books on submission. Um, so yeah, like at that point I kind of become a more silent partner on the editorial side and just kind of like read the emails that go back and forth, but don't throw my opinion in. Unless uh, I assume uh, there's a tension brewing in the relationship on, on one side or the other or both. And that happens. Like, unfortunately, like I have seen author and editor relationships break down. Um, not, you know, not too often. You know, it does happen, which is unfortunate, but you know, then you have to be there to like advocate for your client. Like the publisher needs to be holding up their end of the bargain about when revision letters are due, how much time the author has to revise, how they're being communicated to. Um, you know, largely I haven't had too many issues with that. And most of the time I would say editors and authors have, you know, it's the editors want to have a good relationship with their author just as much as I do. So I, by and large, they are also nurturing and available and collaborative. Um, and I try not to send books to people who I think are unpleasant to work with. You know, I wouldn't want to put an author in that position. Well, how much uh, do you take into consideration how, how likely these two personalities are to mesh well? A decent amount. I mean, because I'm signing people who I like and enjoy working with, and, you know, some editors, you don't necessarily know how the process is going to be, especially if it's someone I haven't sold to before, but they do have reputations. So, you know, you kind of, some of that comes in, just like an author gets to talk to me and see if I'm a good fit for them. Sometimes someone gets more than one offer and they get to have a phone call with more than one editor and they get to feel, feel them out and see who they think is a good fit. And then that match can be just as important. So, you know, that happens more, that happens semi-regularly where like I'll set up a few phone calls for an author to talk to different editors and then they can tell me who they really thought like they jived with the most. That sounds like a nice happy experience. Yeah. Uh, but of course, everybody that's uh, in publishing knows the other kind comes along as well. Yeah. Uh, so something I like to ask uh, everybody that's on the receiving end of rejections, which I know is a fair amount of, yeah. of your year. And me too. I get uh, a lot of rejections too. <laughs> how, uh, how have you learned to cope with rejections this many years into your career? And what advice do you have uh, for others? It's hard. I mean, I, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier. I have to say like, I, and I feel for authors like, because you know, I dish it out a lot 
you know, like I send a lot of rejections to queries because I get a lot of queries. And because I have a small list and it's pretty full at the moment, like there aren't a lot of spots. So I'm turning down stuff that's good a lot of the time or looks promising. I'm not even asking to read a lot of stuff that if it, it might look promising, but I know it's not quite up my alley. So like, I'm not going to waste their time. I'm not rejecting them because they suck. I'm just rejecting them because it's not a good match for me right now. Um, so it, I understand that that's, that can be really tough. So like, as far as dishing out the rejection, I try and be as um, respectful and polite about it as I can. You know, I can only do so much. Like some people take it harder than others and some people get discouraged more easily than others. But, you know, I try and make sure my like, it is a form of rejection, but like that people know that it's, it's just me. Like I'm, this is a subjective business and I can only speak for myself on this one. Um, and then, you know, when things get rejected from editors, like I internalize that like crazy, you know, I, I want to protect authors from that too, because when I sign things, I believe in them and I really think that they're going to find a home. And like when I send things out on submission, even though I know that not all 15 editors are going to love this thing and make an offer on it, like I, I'm like, why wouldn't they? You know, <laughs> I love this thing. Like I'm sending it to them because I want them to love this thing. You know, I'm not sending it to them because they're not going to. So when rejections come in, it, it hurts, you know, and it's like, you know, you just feel, darn it, you know, why isn't this? Why isn't this hitting the, you know, knocking it out of the park? Um, it's, it's just hard. I don't know what, like, I don't know. I don't really have a way of coping with it. Like I definitely do have the instinct to protect my authors from the rejections, even though they want them, they want to know. So sometimes I don't always tell them right away. I'll like wait a couple days and be like, okay, we've got a few letters. Here they are. You know, I'll try and, I'll try and analyze it for them so they can, they can help, you know, they can see what, what the notes are, how to make sense of it. Um, some clients take it way more hardly than others. Um, but it's just part of the deal. Like you can only sell the book to one person at the end of the day. So no matter how many people I send it to, like it's still, only, even if you get offers from everybody, like only one publisher can buy a book. Like only one company can publish a book. So you kind of have to try and just like, you know, be a, be British about it and keep calm and carry on and, you know, stiff upper lip and all that nonsense. So it doesn't, it doesn't get easier though. It's, it hurts. One of the hardest yeah. conversations I've had uh, was a literary agent who thought we had a deal and it ended up getting killed in house. Uh, uh, he yeah, called me up happens. and I was at work. And yeah. I was like, well, man, these, these things, they, they happen. It's okay. It's like, no, it's not okay. And he's, he's really worked <laughs> up. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, I got to go. And we spent like 45 minutes. It was mostly me talking him down. Right. <laughs> Which yeah. I thought was endearing because, oh, why wouldn't you want an agent that, that cares almost more than you do at this point? That's just great. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's, I got very indignant on behalf of my authors. <laughs> <laughs> um, not usually because, like, I'm mad. I do, yeah, it's really hard if something looks like it's going to go through and then it gets yanked. Like, I had a case not too long ago. The book sold and it got multiple offers and was fine. But I had one publisher who was like, the first one to say they were interested and they kept taking it to meetings and kept telling me they were talking about it. And it like, she's like, I think I'm going to offer on this and said that to me a few times and then didn't. And I was like, well, that's, that stings, you know, like that, that always stings, but it happens. Like I'd not everybody can that. get everything. Well, I guess I, I maybe wouldn't take it personal. I'm sure there's a lot of factors involved beyond just the, the individual. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many other people that have to weigh in. I've got uh, questions from Twitter. Um, okay. If uh, you check me out, uh, esteemed audience on Twitter, MG Ninja, uh, every so often I'll throw out the opportunity to ask questions of our uh, guests. I'm going to uh, begin listing future guest appearances at the blog. So anytime you see somebody you're curious about, feel free to get in touch and send me a question. If it uh, doesn't suck, I'll ask it. Uh, before we do that, though, I got to I gotta ask, uh, Alana Roth Parker, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I thought I saw one when I was a kid. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was driving down Woodward Avenue, which is a very big Detroit street that runs from downtown Detroit all the way up where I live. And I was, it's actually not that far from where I live now. And I was in the back of my mom's car and we were driving past this cemetery. And I swore I saw this thing in the sky that had like three lights and a light in the middle. Upon retrospect, it was probably just an airplane and I didn't know what I was looking at, but it looked unusual to me at the time and I swore up and down that I saw that it was a UFO. Um, do I believe in them? I think so. I'm yeah, a huge Star Trek fan. Know. I don't know why not. You know, like I, I'm open. Sci fi is my thing. Yeah. I think Star Trek's already happening and they're just watching what we're doing uh, over here on Earth and like, nope, not, they're not ready. We'll, we'll you get know, to them honestly, later. the only thing that gets me through most of the time um, with how depressing the world is. I know we're not getting into that, but um, is like on Star Trek, they had to, it got a lot worse before we got to, we got to the Federation, you know, like they had to have another big world war and things had to get bad before everyone realized that it was time to eliminate poverty and like do the right thing by humanity. So maybe it's like somewhat hopeful. <laughs> the aliens, they, they might not come this year, but maybe eventually. No, I wouldn't blame them for staying away truthfully right now, but yeah. I think they're here. I don't. I don't know what they're doing. I don't even know if it's aliens, but something. Something's Something. flying around. Who knows? Yeah. Um, another another podcast. Um, so, question that strikes me, and then we'll we'll get to the actual questions from Twitter. But something that's tangentially about Twitter, plus the darkness of the world that we're we're mostly not discussing. But we do live in the world, and some yeah. uh, something I've been worrying about is you you don't want to divide your readership. You don't want to get out there and and be known as an overly politically opinionated person. Uh, plus, I, I just don't know how effective it is at, at this point. If right. your views haven't been set one way or the other, what am I going to say that changes your mind? Right. But you also don't want to be complicit and stay in silence while kids are in cages and all the rest of it. Right. How, what should an author do on social media? Uh, what's acceptable for an author to do in terms of discussing politics and the world in general? You know, I'm not, I know other agents disagree with me. Um, and some agents are much more um, uh, like big brothery about their clients' social media. Um, I'm not like that. And I've actually had that conversation with clients many times. I am not a mom or a babysitter to clients. We're all adults, you know, like hopefully we are all comporting ourselves with dignity and respect. Um, I don't like to tell people what they should and shouldn't talk about on social media. I do think there are smarter and more reckless ways to talk about things on social media, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think kids are on social media, so I don't think, I mean, they're not on Twitter the way, like we're talking to other adults on Twitter. So I guess if someone wants to have their opinions on Twitter, that's fine. Um, Sure, but lots of librarians, uh, teachers. There are librarians, editors. but 
I think people need to be true to themselves to a large extent. I think there's ways to be conscientious and vocal without being a jerk. You know, like I think you can do it without being offensive. Um, but I think the minute I use the word offensive, we start to get into that like white lady, what's polite kind of thing. And like, I kind of think the world deserves more people calling it out at the moment. You know, I'm grateful for having, you know, been more called out, maybe not personally, but like culturally over the last couple of years in a way that's like allowed me to rethink my priorities and my privilege and my place in the world. Um, and how I can use where I am to greater effect and, you know, not be blind to the things I wasn't thinking about before, you know, like I think the world is changing and we are capable of growth. And I think we need people who are speaking truth to power or just being loud to like bring us, bring that attention to that a lot of the time. And I think it's a natural thing for children's book writers to care about these issues because it is the world we're living in and that's the world the kids are living in. And, you know, trying to be too, um, too careful, you're not saying much of anything, you know, like, I think it's okay to have a stand. I think it's okay to have a position and speak about it. So I don't know, like, there's like anything else, like there's, there's good behavior and bad behavior, but, and I would, we could argue that Twitter is just so full of bad behavior by a lot of people right now. It's like, that's across the board. It's just an unpleasant place most of the time. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I would ever monitor how political someone was being, you know, that makes sense. Like, I just don't know. I don't know how, what, what good that would do right now. I mean, I, I just don't. And I, I, I know that like, I've got clients on a wide, you know, they're on the spectrum of religious and political belief. And, you know, I adore them and respect them. And we like each other anyway, even if we disagree about some stuff. Um, so if they want to be themselves, like I can't, I don't want to stop them from being themselves, you know, or talking about the causes they care about. So I don't know. I mean, I still think people should always think about how they're coming across, you know, like, but maybe my, my judgment for what that means is needs fixing. I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's an evolving question. I don't want to tell people what they should and shouldn't do, you know? Yeah. I think that's a very reasonable stance to take. Yeah. Like I don't want to be the mom of off of what of Twitter. I just cancel it if I was the mom. It'd be in permanent timeout. (laughs) Might not be such a bad thing. Yeah, maybe not. But my political stance is known. Flying saucers are real disclosure. Exactly. Okay. Right. Let's talk about Twitter questions because I promised that these folks I'd I'd ask them. So Malcolm Newsom's going to start us off. He's at Malcolm underscore Newsom. Great guy. Follow him. Uh, Assuming the query process has resulted in an offer of representation. What are the things you think every author should consider before signing with the given agent? And also assuming that a publisher makes an offer, what are the important considerations to be made before accepting that offer? Well, for the agent part, we did talk about it a lot at the top of the show. We did. Um, Malcolm which, will be satisfied with that. I we'll wanted to say top of the show because I listen to a lot of podcasts and they say things like that. But I do think, you know, uh, re- uh, resume, sales, history, 
and who they work for is really important. Like those are the big things. And then again, like he's asking if you've gotten an offer. So again, if you're talking to them on the phone, like how do you work? How do you communicate? Like I think it's really important to know upfront, like how often can I expect to hear from you? You know, how do you like me to reach out to you? You know, like is like what is the communication preferences? So make sure that works for you. I think that's really again a, a place where people really get tripped up. Um, and then I know there's a lot of writers that like feel nervous contacting their agents. So like there's a weird power imbalance. So just establishing some transparency up front. Um, yeah, communication style, editorial style, credentials. I'm looking here at the other oh, questions. Oh, and the publisher. Trying to pick out which ones that uh, we've already talked about. Yeah, he also asked about an offer from a publisher. I mean, oh yes. Um, that's more complicated because there's more strategy involved in that. You're sending books to publishers that you assume will make offers in certain ballparks. Um, an agent needs to, going back to the credentials, like you want an agent who's smart enough to know, is this worthwhile? Is this worthwhile for the publisher who's offering it? Where can we improve it? Um, there's not any one deal or deal point that's, there's no one size fits all. So I can't, it's like hard to answer that question exactly, but you know, hopefully that, hopefully you're taking the healthiest offer for the book. Like that's how I tend to view offers is not in terms of size, but health, like considering who's offering it. Is this a good advance for that publisher? Are these the best royalties you can get from that publisher? You know, what territories am I selling to that publisher? You know, just it's a very holistic vision, and so there's a lot of give and take when you're negotiating something. So, it's kind of hard to answer that specifically. But basically, you don't want to be giving away the farm. You know, you don't want to be selling something for too cheap. You know, you don't want to be um, underselling yourself. You know. Yeah, and I don't suppose we can get into too many specifics no, there without hard. giving away it's, some of your secret sauce. So it's not even that. It's just like. I could get two offers from two different publishers and they're just so different because the publishers are different. Like some just can't, I mean, like it shouldn't be a surprise to say like Harper Collins can offer something that a smaller publisher can't because they're huge. You know, they have resources. Some publishers offer less, but they do an amazing job marketing and that's okay. Like they, it's okay to take less because you know, they're going to put more behind it. So those are only questions that you can really you know, talk to your agent about as your as the negotiation is happening. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, Malcolm, if you're if you're watching and listening, and I'm, I know you are, um, send Alana a query, get her to represent <laughs> you, and then by God, you'll right. find out firsthand. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how it works. Uh, yeah. Every time. Uh, okay. There are some more questions. He's got some more. We're going to skip over him and go to Teresa Moore. Uh, she wants to know, I would like to know your thoughts on the importance of having subplots in middle grade. Is there a difference in theory between upper middle grade versus lower and how much attention do you devote to a subplot? Well, again, that's, it's hard to give you a one size fits all kind of answer on that one. You know, maturity level of the reader is a huge component in terms of sophistication of the plot but I would argue that most middle grade novels should have a subplot of some kind um, the more dimensional the character in the story the better like even the first Harry Potter book which is like the youngest of them all which is the truest middle grade of them all has subplots you know like he's 
finding the Sorcerer's Stone and he's learning how to play Quidditch. You know, like you're making him an, a multi-dimensional character by having there be other undercurrents and relationships brewing. So I, I think they are important. And even, even in a younger middle grade, like not super young, like chapter book level, which might be pretty linear and not have as much going on in other layers. But like the minute you get into true middle grade, I would argue that you need at least one B plot, you know, whether like in a, you know, just in a really simple say, like the school story might be the main story, but then what's going on at home with the mom might be something that's more of a B plot or, or the other way around, you know, like, but you, the more layers you can give to a character's life, the better and more three-dimensional the book will be. That makes sense to me. Uh, quick point of clarification I wanted to ask, because I saw on your uh, manuscript wish list that you're looking for high concept middle grade and high concept young adult. So how does one define high concept? High concept in a nutshell is like easy to pitch. Like it's something where the hook of the plot is like easy to get across. You know, where you, you're not saying it's a quiet story about a girl in a small town and her relationship with her mom and she's having a tough time at school. Like that's not a high concept, that's like a quiet story. But if, you know, you say like Percy Jackson, like, you know, that's a high concept. Like he's the son of a Greek god, you know? And then you just go from there. Like things that have that easy one-liner Hollywood kind of this thing, like a hook, that's, that's high concept. Um, and things that are more commercial tend to have a high concept. Um, you know, like, uh, I don't know if I would call Josh, my client Josh Le Levy's book, um, Hitchhiker, uh, not, it's like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but for kids, like, I guess that's high concept, but, uh, you know, things that are easy to sum up. Um, like when I, the selection, which is my biggest series was like the Hunger Games meets The Bachelor. Like it's, you can just give it a, give it a nugget like that and people can fill it in. Like then they can run with it where the, I always say it's like where the, the plot and the setup is bigger than the characters so that you could almost fill in any number of stories within that framework. Like it lets you, it lets you run with it. Um, so I hope that answers the question. It absolutely yeah, does. Something really have pitchable. Yeah. I have millions of more questions for you, but I'm watching the clock and I know we're running out of time and I want to be respectful oh, yeah. of, of your schedule. <laughs> Thank you. um, so let me uh, ask this as our last question, kind of a catch-all. Okay. Uh, what, if there was one piece of advice that uh, you could impart to everyone watching and listening, all the authors who are hopeful about their publishing careers and even the ones that have been discouraged in the past, what is the one piece of advice you'd want to give everyone? Read. Read everything. Like the, my best clients are the ones that read heavily, both in where they wanna publish, but also in other areas that they're interested in. Because the more you read, the better of a writer you're gonna be. Because it, it lets you see what people are doing. It lets you immerse yourself in other people's creativity and words. It lets you have a framework for where your ideas are gonna go. And also just, it's fun. I mean. You know, if you're a writer, like I would think you're a reader. Like you want to be in the books. Like you want to, you want to be there. So I really, I you know, whenever I'm at conferences or anything like that, you can tell the people who are, they're not readers. Like they just had an idea to write a book, but like they're not spending any time in the bookstore thinking about what's already there. So read. And half the time they want to tell you about what a great Netflix series it's going to make after right. the book does well. Right. <laughs> exactly. Drives me up the wall.
Well, Lana, where uh, can uh, esteemed audience find out more about you online? How can they get in touch with their projects? Um, well, our agency website is the best place to get agency information. I'm at the Laura Dale Literary Agency, so it's ldlainc.com, like ldlainc.com. Um, all the submissions info is there, all the book info on our clients is there. I have a website that I don't like blog at or anything, but it's it's updated. Um, it's elana.me. I like that I own that URL. That was pretty, I felt like a good grab. So E-L-A-N-A dot M-E. Um, that's, you know, I don't have, I used to have a blog there and stuff, but like, come on, who's really, you know, no one needs to know what I think about everything all the time. Um, but you can see who, like, I do have my clients broken out there separate from the agency site. So people can actually see like who I'm representing and working on. I have a wish list there on that site too. And I'm on Twitter um, pretty frequently, not every day, cause it's a little soul sucking, but at Ilana Roth. Um, and then you'll see me complain about my kids or, you know, random stuff or I don't know. I'm not as funny as I used to be. Um, I know. Like once upon a time, I feel like I was like really good at Twitter. And now I'm like, I don't even understand how Twitter works anymore. I feel like I'm screaming into the void half the time. <laughs> so, well, I gotta uh, tell you, I yeah. uh, used to be a, a, a lot funnier and a lot more well-rested before I had a child. I've just got the one. <laughs> yeah. Two's not so bad. They're pretty cute. So it's okay. But Changes not, the priorities yeah. around though. It does. It changes. But in a good way. A lot of this has been just a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much for clearing out the time to do this and to provide us with all this wonderful information. And hope, hope uh, it was helpful. And you are welcome back anytime, as <laughs> is any client of uh, Alana's who's listening. Just uh, head over to middlegradeninja.com. You too, esteemed audience. Uh, feel free to email me. I'm always looking for new guests. If you're a publishing professional, agent, author, you're interested in being on the show, email me, save me the trip, or save me the trouble of finding more guests. That'd be great. Um, and um, other than that, uh, make sure you tune in on Friday for our conversation with author Jessica Lawson. Uh, make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Be on the lookout for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Uh, so close now, I can taste it. I can't wait for you to read it. That's going to be wonderful. Uh, Alana, I have been asking our guests to sign us off. Our sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you, so the whole ninja thing makes sense. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you.